Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you've ever read the classic book Endurance, you probably shivered and shuddered as you wondered what it would have been like to have undertaken Ernest Shackleton's famously arduous Antarctic rescue mission. The adventurer Tim Jarvis did more than wonder. When Alexander Shackleton challenged him to recreate her grandfather's epic journey, he jumped at the chance to follow in the legendary explorer's footsteps. Today on the show, Tim, the author of Chasing Shackleton, Recreating the World's Greatest Journey of Survival, first shares the story of Shackleton's heroic effort to save the crew of his failed Antarctic expedition. Tim then tells us how he and his own crew replicated Shackleton's journey over land and sea, from taking the same kind of rowboat to eating the same kind of rations, and the lessons in resilience and leadership he learned along the way. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is Shackleton. All right. Tim Jarvis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are an explorer, an adventurer, and in 2013, you did an expedition in which you recreated Ernest Shackleton's famous rescue mission in the Antarctic. I'm sure a lot of people have read that famous book, Endurance. Um, We're going to talk about that adventure today, but before we do, let's talk about your background. How did you get started with exploring the Antarctic? Well, look, I mean, I've always explored things ever since I was a kid. I grew up in Malaysia as a young child. My parents used to just send me outside and tell me to go and find things to do. And that stayed with me all through, all through childhood, all the way into adulthood. And the expeditions just got bigger and bigger. And I think once you spend a bit of time in your own company and, and being that version of yourself, you feel most like yourself when you're in those places. So I've just kept on going. And I guess the, the, the ultimate conclusion is to end up doing Shackleton's journey. Before you did Shackleton's expedition, you recreated the Douglas Mawson expedition. For those who aren't familiar with that expedition, what was it and where did you get this idea to replicate it? Yeah, look, I mean, I've done lots of expeditions in the modern way, but I've done two the old way, Mawson and Shackleton. And, and Mawson was an Australian scientist. He was a contemporary of, of Shackleton. Um, he'd gone on an expedition with two colleagues to chart an uncharted section of Antarctic coastline. And essentially the first guy about 350 miles out from base fell in a crevasse. He went down the hole with the dog team and the sled that contained about 80% of the food for the three men. So once he was gone, Mawson and the surviving guy were left with a, 
essentially a 330, 340 mile return trip back to base with only about 20% of the food they needed to survive. The second man died halfway home in Mawson's arms of what he described at the time as fever, but it could well have been, it could have been anything, could have been malnutrition, hypothermia, frostbite, bit of gangrene. But Mawson was the sole survivor of that expedition and many people had asked you know, what is it that happened to the second man? And did Mawson need to eat the, the second guy in order to make it? And so I decided to do that trip the same way as Mawson with the same starvation calories he had to see what happened. I just traveled with an increasingly nervous Russian guy. We started from the point at which the first man died and the Russian guy and I, John, basically tried to trek back to base the same distance as Mawson on the same food that he said he had without the need, need to eat him. And I made it, but I lost... I lost over 70 pounds in weight and fell over the finish line. But I'm pretty much convinced that the thing that killed the second guy was eating the dog livers on that original expedition. And he got vitaminosis. That's what killed him. And uh, that it could be done without the need to eat the second man. So um, the prize was to be asked to do Shackleton's journey. What's vitaminosis? What is that? That's when you uh, things like the livers of Arctic animals contain toxic levels of vitamin A and humans just cannot metabolize that. So if you eat the offal of those animals, whether it's a polar bear or a fox or a dog or a reindeer, you are poisoning yourself. They didn't realize that back in 1913, but that's what was happening. Uh, so you mentioned you did some other expeditions the modern way. What were some of those expeditions you've done in Antarctica? Well, look, I've been to Antarctica 13 times. I bid to be the first person to cross Antarctica one side to the other on foot unsupported. I got about 2,000 kilometers on that journey. It was a pretty brutal, brutal trip. The thing that prevented me doing the total crossing was uh, a fuel leak into my food about three quarters of the way through the journey. But I did get the record for the longest journey at the time. I got to the pole in 47 days and then out the other side. I've also been down and made a VR film called Thin Ice, which is all about showing the amount of change that's happening in Antarctica. That required getting to some pretty remote places. Then, of course, there's the Mawson expedition. There's the research for the Mawson expedition. Then there's Shackleton and the research for that. And um, I've been to the high Arctic five times. So, look, I, I spend a lot of time down there. When you do these expeditions, whether it's a modern one or a recreation, what's the hardest part? Is it the cold? Is it the long distance you have to walk? The solitude? What do you, what do you, what's been your experience? Uh, look, on any given day, the difficulty changes. I mean, sure, you can have extreme, extreme weather. You can have monotony. You can have danger if you fall in crevasses, which has happened before. Um, I think it's the relentlessness of the place that really does you in. I think the key thing with successful expeditions is just having your own internal frame, your own internal uh, kind of way you're going to conduct yourself because you've got a place with 24-hour light if you go in the summer. You've got an endless white horizon. You have to impose your own kind of structure on, on things and just agree to do what you set out to do. Otherwise, you can kind of get lost in the enormity of the place. So I think it's the relentlessness. You know, you can't stop or you get cold. The only time you can stop is really when you get in the tent at the end of the day. But even that has to be done as quickly as possible because you're 10,000 feet up on the polar plateau and it's minus 40 degrees. So you've got to move fast. So I think it's that relentlessness. Well, let's talk about Shackleton's famous adventure. When did Shackleton make what became his most famous Antarctic trip? 
Well, Shackleton had done, uh, he'd been south with Scott, of course, on his expedition in 1903-05, and he was invalided home, actually, from that. He then went a second time on the 1907-09 Nimrod expedition, and he almost made it to the South Pole. So this was actually his third expedition. The one that he's he's really renowned for was the third expedition. And he went down on the eve of the First World War in 1914. And the goal was to cross Antarctica from one side to the other, because, of course, Scott had made it to the pole, sadly didn't make it back. He and his team of four died. Amundsen, the Norwegian, of course, made it in and out with no problem. They were just slaughtering and consuming their dogs and feeding the weakest dogs to the strongest in order to make it, but they did a very good job. So Shackleton thought to do one better than what Scott and Amundsen had done, he would go all the way across. That was the basic plan. And he he left literally as the First World War was breaking out. Okay, when did things start going awry for the trip? Well, I mean, I think things went awry almost from the outset. I mean, they left the UK. He wrote to Churchill, who was head of the Admiralty, and said, look, give me the word and I'll give over the whole the ship, the expedition resources, the men to the war effort, and Churchill just said, proceed. It was a one-word response. And things went wrong almost immediately. They got down to Antarctic waters. They reached South Georgia on the way down, which is an island at 54 degrees south, middle of the Atlantic at the bottom, basically. And they got down there and they realized that when they spoke to the whalers who were there, they said, look, the ice is so thick this year, you're never going to make it to Antarctica. But unfortunately, of course, they had no choice but to keep going. And, and they did. And of course, encountered the pack ice and the ship ground to a halt about 40 miles short of the Antarctic coastline, where it remained until the pressure of the ice crushed the hull and the, the ship sank. So look, it started going wrong from that moment. How long did it take for the ship to sink after it got packed in ice? Well, they were stuck uh, on the ship for 10 months. And they were then, once the ship had sunk, they lived on the pack ice for a further five months. So they had, you know, a year and three months either in the stricken ship or on the pack ice. So that takes you through by that stage to 1916. Unbelievably, you know, they were, they were at 1916. And when the pack ice broke up after they made camp on it, they paddled for five days to reach this island called Elephant Island. There everybody remained. He left 22 of his men there under two of the upturned rowboats that they were in. And he headed off in April 16 to do this crazy journey across the Southern Ocean to try and raise the alarm and, and rescue the guys he'd left behind. Oh, so give us an idea. What, what did that journey look like? So they dropped them off at Elephant Island. Where did he go after that? Well, like I say, the ice broke up. They paddled for five days in three rowboats. They left two there with 22 men. And then Shackleton and the five strongest got in the most seaworthy of the boats. They took planks off the other two and made a kind of deck on the one they were going to take, the James Caird. And they headed off across the Southern Ocean. The nearest inhabited place that you could reach was this island, South Georgia, where they'd visited on the way down. There, there were whaling stations. The problem was it was 800 nautical miles away across the roughest ocean in the world. And they only had a a sextant to measure the angle to the sun or a star if they could see them. And, you know, you miss the island either because you can't find it or you sink in the, in, on the way up there. Obviously, that's bad. But if you miss it, there's no way you can turn around and have another go because the winds and currents that have pushed you north from Antarctica towards South Georgia won't allow you to sail back to have a second go. So they had to get the trajectory right first time across this 
vastness of the Southern Ocean with mountainous seas. And they experienced two storms and a hurricane on the way up there, almost capsizing on multiple occasions before they made it. And then they make it and then they had to go on a hike after that. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, they arrived from the south and they celebrated because they'd found South Georgia. But of course, they arrived on the wrong side, really. They arrived on the southern side, the southwestern side of the island. And all the whaling stations where the people were, were on the northern side. So they couldn't sail round because if you try and hug the coastline, the same winds and currents that have pushed you north will just push your little rowboat onto the rocks. And and you've got to understand that South Georgia is mountains 10,000 feet high, really, really uh, jagged, angular peaks like the Alps, you know, coming straight out of the ocean. Uh, so the only thing for it was to climb through the uncharted interior. And of course, they had no equipment. They had no climbing ability. They had no tent. So it meant they couldn't stop. They had to keep moving. They had pieces of congealed animal fat for their sustenance from the seals they killed on the ice. And they pulled the nails out of their packing cases and pushed them back through the soles of their boots for grip because they didn't have any crampons. So it was a pretty serious undertaking to attempt this. It was desperation, but they had no choice. How long did the uh, hike take to get to the whaling station? When Shackleton got to South Georgia, they had the worst weather South Georgia can throw at you. So they were actually stuck on the beach where they landed for a further four or five days, at which point Shackleton realized three of the guys he was with were just in such poor shape they weren't going anywhere. So he was already reduced to him and two others to try and make the crossing. And the crossing then took 96 hours, uh, sorry, in their case, 36, me, it took 96, 36 hours of constant movement with no ability to rest for more than a few minutes at a time or you would freeze. They had no shelter. So by the time they reached the whaling station, they'd been out there for a long time. And then once he got to the whaling station, Shackleton immediately started planning a rescue mission to get his men that he left on Elephant Island. And when the ship finally got there, this was almost two years after the Endurance got stuck in the ice and all 22 of his men were still alive. And the end result was Shackleton saved his entire crew. I mean, no one died, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, he is really the almost the entire opposite of, of what happened to Scott. Scott died along with all his men very heroically in his bid to reach the South Pole and Shackleton equally heroically, but for different reasons, saved everybody on his failed attempt to cross Antarctica from one side to the other. He brought everybody home, all 27 men. And they got back in 1917, just in time to participate in the final years of the First World War. So what was Shackleton like as a leader? What made him different from Scott and the other Antarctic explorers that allowed him to, despite all the odds, carry out successfully this rescue mission? Well, Shackleton was a people person, really. He was an outsider. He was Anglo-Irish, which has meant that as far as the Irish were concerned, he was a bit too English, and the English regard him as sort of a bit too Irish. And so he didn't really sit comfortably in either camp. He was Merchant Navy rather than Scott, who was Royal Navy. So he couldn't just rely on commanding people to do things like you can in the Royal Navy, or you could back then. You know, you an officer issued an instruction, you had to do it even if you didn't agree with it, whereas Merchant Navy... You know, you had to really be liked by people or they wouldn't do things for you. And he had a lot of female influences in his life as a young man. And that maybe made him a bit more emotionally intelligent than the equivalent male of that period would have been. So all in all, it basically made him the kind of person who was more compassionate. He was a tough guy, but he was compassionate and he understood how to get the best out of people. And it was all about putting yourself in their shoes 
and seeing things from their perspective. And that allowed him to target the way he spoke to people to get the best out of people. And the other thing that stood out to me as you wrote this book and carried out your own expedition, you also talk about how Shackleton, he just had this unwavering optimism. No matter the odds, he's just like, oh, we're going to be fine. Like he was very intentional about it. Yeah. You know, he, he said optimism is true moral courage. And he just had that fundamental optimistic outlook on life. Maybe it was his, uh, his Irish genes. Maybe it was his upbringing. Maybe it was just who he was as a person. But yeah, absolutely. He just had that incredible, what we would now call growth mindset, where if a problem came your way, he just looked at it as an opportunity to uh, prove himself and to overcome it. And he rose to every every challenge. Problems are just things to overcome after all, I think he said. And he just he just seemed to enjoy it. It was all part of the game and part of the test. Uh, genuinely philosophical uh, outlook on life. Okay, so you get this idea to replicate Shackleton's journey. And we're going to talk about the lengths you went to to make sure you got it as close as possible. So you tried to make the same type of boat, the same type of clothing, the same type of gear that these guys would be using, the same sorts of rations. Any expedition to the Antarctic is a huge undertaking. There's so many moving parts. There's layers upon layers of bureaucracy that you have to go through just to make a trip happen. When you set your eyes on this goal to recreate Shackleton's journey, what was the first thing you had to work on? Well, the first thing to do was to decide how we were going to do this. Were we going to do it absolutely true to the way uh, he did it? And once we decided we were, that kind of made a lot of things in some respects easier because you just decided you were going to use a keelless rowboat. You just decided you were going to use non-waterproof clothing. You just decided you weren't going to use, uh, you know, GPS. You were going to use a sextant, which meant learning how to traditionally navigate using one. So we could make the same kind of mistakes they made because essentially we were copying, copying them. So I think, you know, once you've made that decision, in some respects, yes, it makes life a hell of a lot more unpleasant for you, but it makes the thinking bit a little bit easier because on expeditions, you're always trying to give yourself a bit of an angle and increase your chances of success. But this time around, we were just trying to, you know, copy what he had and, and, and let the cards fall as they may, you know? So I'm not saying it was easy, quite the opposite. You've got to rebuild all the boat and the equipment and learn traditional ways of doing things, but at least you're just copying what he did. The thing that stood out to me when you're building the boat, the hardest part was all the customs and the dealing with different countries' laws on imports and exports. And there were a few close calls where the boat almost didn't make it to where it needed to get to to launch this mission. Yeah, look, I mean, it was almost five years of pretty tortuous planning and stress to make it a reality, which is, I guess, why no one had done it since Shackleton. You know, you and and you're right. I mean, the boat almost didn't make it on many occasions, I mean, there are all sorts of issues with funding for a start, but, and then you've got to find the expertise to do it. But I was leaving to go to France and I was getting on the, uh, there's a, there's a train tunnel that links to the UK and France. And I was just about to put my car on that and go into zero phone reception. And I got a call saying the boat is on a, a bigger ship about to do the same crossing as me, but on the surface and the paperwork is not in order. And, you know, I had to make frantic calls to Australia to, custom information and ownership details across to the port authorities. And I had about, you know, two minutes to do it before my 
train left and I, I was plunged into half an hour of no phone reception. If, had I not made that, the boat wouldn't have got across to France. We wouldn't have made the ship that my little boat was going to piggyback on to go down to Antarctica and there wouldn't have been an expedition. And this sort of stuff was happening all the way through the whole process. When When the boat finally got down to Antarctica ahead of us, it was traveling on a bigger ship and the bigger ship couldn't get into the base that I'd spent two years lining up as the place that I would drop this boat off on at because the pack ice had moved in. And again, within 24 hours, I had to come up with an alternative plan, even though the previous plan had taken me two years to arrange. So yeah, look, it wasn't without its stresses. Uh, You mentioned funding. How much did funding the trip take up your time and bandwidth? Oh, look, funding always took up a lot of time. But I mean, you look back at the heroic era and frankly, nothing was different back then either. I mean, um, even Amundsen, who's regarded as being this kind of morally upstanding Norwegian who wouldn't uh, ever do anything wrong. I mean, he left owing money and just thought, you've just got to go and do the expedition and we'll make money if we're successful. And uh, it was the same for Shackleton and uh, the same for many of them, frankly. And it was, you know, to an extent, the same for us. I mean, we obviously couldn't leave owing money, but I certainly went with a lot of debt. And, you know, we were lucky we had backers like Discovery Channel and PBS as the broadcast partners. But a lot of their funding, of course, went into the making of the film we made, not the funding of the expedition. So, um, yeah, look, it took me years to raise the funds to make it a reality. I just tried to take a, a leaf out of Shackleton's playbook and uh, and look at these things as problems to be overcome. Yeah, that, I like that idea that they're just problems to over, overcome. And I love this, the lessons that you can learn from Shackleton or even you trying to plan this trip. Maybe people who are listening to this show aren't going to be planning a trip to the Antarctic, but we've all got these big projects that we have to do. Maybe we're like renovating our house and same sort of thing. You're going to have these red tape obstacles. You're going to run out of money. Plans that you had, they're going to fall through. You just have to not stress out about it too much and just see them as problems to overcome. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. 
There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So planning the trip, going through the bureaucracy, funding the trip, that consumed a lot of your time. But then you had to start recruiting for this trip. How did you recruit for your trip? And then did you get any lessons from Shackleton on how to recruit? Shackleton ran an advert that may or may not have been real. Certainly he said it, whether it appeared as an advert, I'm not sure, but it said men wanted for hazardous journey. Months of bitter cold, darkness, low wages, honor and recognition in case of success, safe return, doubtful. And he got about 3,000 applicants for the 27 places. Now, I thought about running the same advert. I didn't in the end. The word got round we were doing what we were doing. And there were so many people who were interested that we were, we had about 300 applicants for the five places on board, on board the boat. We weren't going to sink a perfectly good. Uh, square rigger down in Antarctica and leave 22 people on Elephant Island. We were just going to get in the keelless rowboat, the James Caird, and do the the rescue mission, followed by the climbing. And uh, I had about 300 applicants. But I think what was so clever about what Shackleton said is the framing, the way he put it. He basically said, look, if you're interested in a good time and coming and meeting new people and traveling to interesting places, 
perhaps don't apply. But if you're interested in doing something at the limits of your own personal endurance, then maybe this is for you because you're going to discover new things about yourself that will make you far life far richer. Maybe not in monetary terms, but in sp- spiritual terms, then uh, then please sign here. And I think it appealed to people. They thought, yeah, I'm up for that. Let's see what happens. What sort of individuals were you looking for for your trip? Well, I mean, at, at the very basic level, you're looking for five people to accompany you because there are six of us in total. You need people who can sail or climb or film or preferably a combination of all of those things. So the team were two real gun sailors, uh, Nick Bub, Paul Larson, Ed Wardle, who's an Everest mountaineer, who's also the former free diving champion of the UK. So a single breath deep as you can go. He got down to almost 300 feet. Barry Gray, who's my climbing partner, who's uh, former head of outdoor survival for the UK Armed Forces. And uh, Seb Coulthard, who is a Royal Navy guy, very good at uh, technical stuff. So he he really project managed the construction of the boat. So you need all of those skills, climbing, boat building, filming, sailing and navigating. But you also need more than that. You need what Malcolm Gladwell calls divergent intelligence. So you've got you need people who have got the capacity to think laterally, be positive in difficult situations, and always be focused on getting a positive outcome. So you need uh, problem-solving ability as well as the technical skills. Uh, so you've mentioned some of the period equipment and gear that you brought for your expedition. You used a sextant. Uh, the clothing you used was just it was basically cotton clothing that you did. You like waterproof it with wax? Did you do any type of waterproofing on this stuff? Yeah, they they waterproof because I mean you know. You've got to remember that Antarctica is the driest, windiest, highest, coldest continent in the world. But the emphasis on the driest is that some places there's been no, no rainfall or snowfall for 200,000 years. You know, it's very, very dry. You're not going to get, you're not expecting to get rained on or snowed on, really. So their clothing was breathable and windproof. And so it was just tightly woven cotton. They were never intending to do an open boat journey in that clothing. Um, so they used rendered down fat from seals to sort of basically try and waterproof their clothing. And we used a kind of an equivalent form of just organic grease, really. So no animals were killed in the making of the film, but we did use kind of grease. We just wiped it on with our hands. And frankly, after a couple of days, it had washed off anyway, and the clothing just wasn't waterproof. But that's what we did. So food, the original expedition, they killed some seals along the way you can't do that today so what did you all do for food to get as close to the food that they ate as possible yeah we <clears throat> we, we we were really really very clinical about the way we went about working out the food because you got um, protein fat and carbs and we really tried to get exactly the same proportions of those we remade the pemmican pemmican is the kind of sledging ration of the heroic era which is basically very very high fat content food we made pemmican exactly the same recipe as them we took the equivalent meat that they would have got from the seals they ate in the form of uh, we took kangaroo jerky which is very very lean and we we worked out that it was exactly the same sort of fat content as the non-fat meat of the seals they consumed and then we made up the rest of the fat load with more of the pemmican which essentially is just congealed lard anyway. So we took exactly the same stuff as they had. We had the nougat and the nuts and the whiskey. We took exactly the same as they had. We were able to look at their rations very carefully and and recreate them. How many calories a day 
did you get for each man? Well, I mean, you know, bear in mind, even though their food was high fat and had lots of energy in it, they actually didn't have much of it because, of course, they'd spent 10 months on the ship eating most of the food and then five months on the pack ice once the ship sank before they did their five days to Elephant Island. And and so they were using food up all the way through. So by the time they got to Elephant Island, before they embarked on this journey, they didn't have much left. So we were only on about two, two and a half thousand calories a day, which is no more than you would have back home, basically, kind of ration that a, a fit male would probably consume back home. And it's not really enough for the extreme cold you experience. And, and of course, you're getting wet the whole time. So your body is working very hard to keep warm and burning burning lots of calories. We probably needed 5,000, but we were only eating about two, two and a half. Did you lose a lot of weight? Yeah, I lost weight. Not as much as on the Mawson expedition where I lost 70 pounds. I probably lost about 35 pounds on this trip because you've just got the stress of it all. You've got the, the, the ever-present cold. We had one good day when the weather was, I wouldn't call it warm, but it wasn't cold. It was, um, you know, the sun actually came out. But we got to South Georgia. We had five days of you know, 100, 120 mile an hour, uh, catabatic winds, you know, and then crossing the mountains itself is a cold, unpleasant exercise. So yeah, you know, you're, you're burning through the calories. So let's talk about the trip itself. So it starts off on the boat. You guys create a, a replica of the boat that Shackleton and his crew used. You uh, named yours the Alexandra Shackleton after the granddaughter of Shackleton and the patron of your trip. What was life like on that boat? And like, how much space did you have? I mean, even like things like going to the bathroom, what was that like? Well, look, I mean, everything is, everything's challenging. I mean, you're living in the space the size of a queen size double bed for six men, basically. So you're, there's no lying down. You're sitting on top of rocks. Shackleton took a ton of rocks off the beach at Elephant Island to try and weigh the boat down and stop it tipping upside down in big sea in the absence of having a keel the vertical that sticks out of the bottom of the boat to stop capsize happening. So you're sitting on rocks and camera batteries to the equivalent weight as what he had, and you're sharing two steadily decomposing reindeer skin sleeping bags uh, that people have been sick into. And, you know, you've got five of you just sitting there waiting for the guy who's last in line to, you know, go up on deck and try and steer the boat at which point the guy who's up there on the helm comes down and everybody moves around one, if you know what I mean. Toilet was just done in a bucket, right kind of more or less in your face between one another. And you've got about uh, half an inch of of large planks separating you from the zero degree Celsius seawater of the Southern Ocean. And it's rough and noisy and dark and basically extremely unpleasant. So sometimes as terrible as it was to have to be on the helm trying to steer the boat particularly at night with waves crashing over you with frozen you were frozen solid you sometimes look forward to the prospect of that rather than being stuck down below in a tiny cramped seated position you know sitting on top of the rocks so look it was uh you know not much fun yeah was there a moment during that the boat trip where you thought yeah we're not going to make it we're going to have to abandon this trip Yeah, you know, there are always those moments. The question is, what do you do about them? You know, to say that you don't have that feeling, you know, pop up into your mind on multiple occasions during trips like this would be lying. I mean, you do have those feelings, but we never seriously thought about stopping. But we did have near capsized situations at sea and very, very big sea state. 
we did find ourselves approaching South Georgia going pretty quickly because we had massive seas pushing us onto South Georgia and you've got a limited ability to steer and you've got boiling cauldrons of rocks just below the surface. You've got these vertical cliffs that go straight up into five, 6,000 foot high peaks, even at the coast, you know, massive, intimidating place to try and land a keelless rowboat, basically in big seas. And then, you know, crossing the mountains of South Georgia, we have multiple crevasse falls. So, and no equipment really to, you know, get somebody out if one fell in and was injured. So, yeah, there were many occasions where I thought this could be bad if we don't get it right. But luckily we prevailed. So how long did it take you to get from Elephant Island to land? It was two weeks at sea, followed by, yeah, five days when we got there, pinned down by very bad weather. And how long did it take Shackleton? Well, he, in fact, took 17 days. He took a few more days than us. But one of the reasons being they uh, they almost made it and then a hurricane blew them offshore. They were tantalizingly close and they got pushed offshore. And they had to wait till the sort of prevailing seas came back to allow them to get pushed back onto shore again. So they were lucky they didn't get pushed out to sea and get pushed past South Georgia. Or as I say, they would never have been able to sail upwind to reach it again. They were lucky they just got pushed back in the direction they'd just come from. Okay, so two weeks on board a boat where you have the space that's about the size of a queen-size bed. That's really cramped. That's pretty tight, you know, being around that many people. Did you guys have any personality clashes while you were on the boat? And if so, like, how did you manage that? Yes, I mean, there were the inevitable things. But what I would say is they're a good bunch of guys. We'd had many of those disagreements before we ever got on the boat, you know. So I think the key thing with team dynamics on expeditions or in any walk of life is that you've got to be honest with one another. And so we had some pretty frank discussions and disagreements before we ever got there. So, and, and that makes your relationship strong enough to withstand what comes with an expedition. You know, there's no point going down there, everybody being friendly and happy and avoiding disagreement for the sake of harmony. Because as soon as you get down there, you're going to find the pressure is on and things can fall apart. So look, We'd had plenty of plenty of disagreements and arguments and things like that. They were all constructive, though, and um, we were a pretty tight knit group by the time we got there. You know, that's not to say you don't have disagreements when you're on board. I mean, it's difficult when you've got someone's backside in your face and you're you're cold and wet and hungry and you're feeling sick and you're worried about whether the boat will manage the next the next big wave that's about to hit. Tempers get a bit frayed. So you get to land. That's when you start having attrition. That's when you have members starting to drop out. What caused the attrition? Basically, it was people's feet because you're standing in leather boots with woolen socks, often in knee to thigh deep, freezing seawater. So really, for the most of the time on the boat, you're not feeling your feet properly, sometimes for an extended period of time, sometimes days. And for some of the guys, that meant uh, frostbite, and what they call trench foot, which is what the, the soldiers used to get in the, in the First World War in the trenches. You're just cold, wet, in a seated position. In their case, so you don't get shot. In our case, there was just no space. And your circulation goes in your feet. And so three of the six guys were un- unable to do the mountain crossing. But what's interesting, that attrition sets you up so your trip, your hike, it would mirror Shackleton's a bit more, correct? It was really amazing when you think that when Shackleton got there, two of his guys were in very poor shape and he left the third man to keep an eye on those two. He left them under the upturned boat on the beach that they arrived at. And then he and the two strongest did the crossing of the mountains. But he did it with Tom Crean, 
who was the tough guy on their expedition, and a guy called Frank Worsley, who was the skipper and navigator. And when we got there, we were intending to do the crossing as a team of six. The idea was that the three sailors would put on modern gear, brought in by another small yacht, and then they would have modern comms, and they would be our kind of backup. And me, Baz, and Ed, the three mountaineers, would stay in the old gear and do the crossing. That's the way it was meant to be. But with injury, we ended up with me and Baz, Baz being the hard guy, me being the expedition leader, and we ended up with Paul, who was our navigator, because the other guy's feet were too bad. And it was the same three as Shackleton. You know, he did it together with Tom Green, the tough guy, and Worsley, the navigator. We did it as the expedition leader, the, the, the tough guy, and, and, and our navigator. So it was wonderful, actually. After you got over the initial shock of three guys dropping out, you thought, Actually, this is a positive thing because it's bringing us closer to what Shackleton went through. So you didn't begin the hike right away. You actually you were on the like the shore for a little bit, correct? Well, we had the worst weather South Georgia can throw at you for five days, so we just got pinned down. We couldn't couldn't get away. We at that stage did have tents because we knew we couldn't turn our boat upside down like Shackleton had done once he got there because we knew our boat ultimately had to be towed out of South Georgia and removed. You can't just abandon boats down in Antarctica these days, so. We knew we were going to have to have to take it out, so we did concede and have some tents on the shore. They got blown blown away, but really, really in really bad shape. We ended up hiding in a cave and getting driftwood and getting fires going in the cave just to sustain ourselves from the weather we were experiencing. It was it was pretty brutal. Did Shackleton have something similar where he, he was camped out a bit before he started the hike? Yeah, Shackleton also ended up in a situation where he had to wait it out for a few days. For him, it was for slightly different reasons. They'd been forced to um, to stop off at what he called Cave Cove, which is a different spot in the same bay before he moved. After a, a, a period of time there, they moved a bit closer to the head of the bay before they started their climb. But, you know, the amount of time that he had to wait and the amount of time we had to wait were very similar again. We didn't try and make that similarity happen. It just happened with the weather we were given. So you said earlier that South Georgia has a lot of high, jagged peaks. What were the hiking conditions like? South Georgia is like an alpine mountaineering exercise. It's very, very steep terrain. I would say the climbing up is actually not bad. It's perfectly doable. The difficult bit is the going down. And there are two serious descents you have to do if you follow exactly the footsteps he took. The first is off the Trident Mountains, where you're on the high ground and you've got to kind of find a couloir between these mountains that stick up out of that ice cap and you've got to go down those to get to the lower ground. And that's about a 1,500-foot descent down very, very steep terrain. So that's the first bit that's tricky. The second thing that's tricky is crossing through the glaciers where crevassing is a major issue. And you have to travel whether the weather is good or bad. You've got to keep moving. And so we traveled even when we couldn't see where we were going. And, you know, that means you fall in crevasses you don't even see. And the third thing is Breakwind Ridge, which is the final ridge going down into the valley just before the whaling station. That's about a thousand foot down climb. And that is the most dangerous bit of all, uh, certainly the steepest. And if you follow Shackleton's diary, that's what he did. And so that's what we did. And it was pretty challenging because if anybody falls, you just pull the other two guys off with you and you fall to your death. So it was tricky. And we were very, very pleased when we got to the uh, whaling station, I can tell you. And so it took you guys 96 hours, correct? 
It took 96, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons for that was we were actually joined also by a yacht that had come in. We had a beacon on our boat that showed this other yacht who weren't with us but could see us in the Southern Ocean. They could see when we were approaching South Georgia. And so they, they too, made their way to South Georgia. And then it brought with it two camera guys who had a lot of mountaineering experience. And the idea was they would be in modern gear and they would accompany us to film what happened on the mountain crossing. Um, basically they decided they couldn't do the crossing. The weather was too extreme. One guy had a, a kind of injury. The other guy decided it wasn't for him too extreme. And so both of those guys were out. So part of our 96 hours related to having to kind of stay with those guys and try and make sure they got down safely. In the end, they had to make their own way down, but we still had to stick it out with them on the high ground for about 36 hours. So that accounts for 36 hours, but I'm not quite sure where the other day came from that it took us compared to Shackleton. It's amazing the speed that he crossed, crossed that terrain. Yeah, it seemed like the TV crew got on your nerves quite a bit. They were, they were, it seemed like they were a necessary evil sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, Shackleton never had to put up with that sort of shit. I said to myself, excuse the language. I mean, you know, and it's true, you know, when he was there, it was just him and the enormity of the landscape through which he traveled and the pressure he felt to make sure that somebody made it to raise the alarm to go back and rescue the guys he left in Antarctica. For us, we were burdened by the film guys. You know, for them, it was a job, really. For us, it was a vocation. You know, it was a calling. And that's the difference. None of my guys got paid, me included. And we were there because of the love of it. Whereas I think if you've got people who are there because they're doing a job as good as they might be, it makes their kind of uh, decision matrix a little bit different to yours. And that's what happened. Did you suffer any injuries on the hike and the climb? Well, I mean, I've already already had bad frostbite on my hand. I haven't lost any fingers, but I certainly lost sensation, permanent nerve damage in those. And same with my right foot. And that same old injury flared up again. But I wasn't about to tell anybody because... I just don't think it it really uh, it really helps. But no, apart from that, we made it through unscathed. Uh, lost weight, had a few crevasse falls, as I say, more than a few crevasse falls. But luckily, none of them were serious. Well, the title of the last chapter of the book comes from a line from Shackleton. He said, "Never for me the lowered banner, never the last endeavor." What did that line mean to you after you completed this journey? It meant that for me. There was always another challenge, you know. It's not in life as though you retire from something. It was a calling for him. It is for me. You know, there's never going to be a last thing until it's the last thing, and then it'll be beyond your control to do anything about it. You know, there's always going to be something you're going to take on. And I've, for me, I, I, I guess I've remained consistent to that throughout my life. I've got a lot of energy. I'm, I can't imagine just stopping. Why would you? For him, there was always the next thing. And for in his case, he went back down six years after the expedition that, in many people's eyes, was his greatest victory. Yes, he didn't make the crossing of Antarctica, but he did save everybody and demonstrated this incredible leadership and heroism in the into the bargain. And he went back one more time and died of a heart attack back at the scene of his greatest victory back at South Georgia the night he arrived. And so that was the final chapter for him. But he was kind of, he went down fighting. What have you been doing since this expedition? 
Oh, look, since the expedition, I've had a project called 25-0, which involves climbing all the mountains at the equator that have a remnant glacier to highlight climate change. And I, I've got through 16 of them, and then COVID sort of got in the way. And I've been working on that. I've made a, a film called Thin Ice, which is a VR experience about Shackleton, designed really for kids, but more grown-up kids seem to like it than kids, or at least both like it. I'm working on with the Australian government on setting up marine protected areas down in the Southern Ocean. And we had a big success last year with uh, Macquarie Island, which is one of Australia's three uh, sub-Antarctic islands, now has a big sanctuary of almost half a million square kilometres around it. Lots of things I'm working on. I've got a reforestation project I'm working on called the Fork Tree Project. I continue to make films, I continue to do trips, and I continue to work on the environment stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, they're kind of all interconnected. Makes sense to me anyway. So never the lowered bannered for you. Never the lowered banner, never the last endeavor. That's right. Well, Tim, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So look, I think the best place to go is probably my website, timjarvis.org. They can go to thinicevr.com and they can go to theforktreeproject.com, which is my reforestation work. And then, of course, the social media is timjarvisam, as in am like the morning. And that's on LinkedIn and Instagram. Fantastic. Well, Tim Jarvis, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. It's been wonderful. My guest today was Tim Jarvis. He's the author of the book, Chasing Shackleton. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, timjarvis.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Shackleton, where you find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter. we got a daily option and a weekly option. They're both free. It's the best way to stay on top of what's going on at AOM. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Music.